Welcome, welcome. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for this evening. Thank you for this church family. Truly what a joy it is to be able to gather together on a Wednesday night in public without fear of persecution, uh, to be able to look at your word once again together and to rejoice in you together. We ask that as we look at the scriptures tonight and rejoice in, in the, your scriptures, that you would help us to think rightly and to not only think rightly, but that you would turn our affections towards you. And we ask, Lord, that, uh, that you would be glorified in all of this tonight. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, have you ever been signing a contract where the legalese is so intense that you really don't have any idea what you're signing up for? Sure you do. Like, all of us have at some point, you download an app or you go to a website and you have terms and conditions and we go scroll, 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 scroll. We hit accept because what's the point of reading it? It's, it's unclear. It's confusing. So we just go through it and we accept. Well, some people think that that's how the Bible is. They think that the Bible is too confusing, that it's too hard to understand. So why even try to understand the Bible? But the Bible is not like that. The Bible's not like that. Yeah, there are some things in it that are difficult to understand. That's true. But as a whole, God has designed his scriptures in such a way that even people like you and I can understand the Bible from reading it. And that's what we're gonna, some of what we're going to be talking about tonight. So tonight, as we, as we continue our study on the subject of the Holy Scriptures, we're going to see four things. If you have a handout or want a handout, they're where there's the second and third the back row there to where uh, Malachi is sitting in front of Eliza. So we're going to look at four things. Number one, the illumination of the Holy Spirit is required to understand the Scriptures unto salvation. Number two, common sense and culture do affect how we apply some of the principles of Scripture. Number three, not everything in the Bible is equally clear. And number four, the Bible is clear enough for salvation. So let's take a look at each of these concepts in turn, starting with number one. The illumination of the Holy Spirit is required to understand the Scriptures unto salvation. We're continuing in our reading of the, of the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, which is one of two of the major Reformed confessions from the 1600s, the first one being the Westminster Confession of Faith, which our Presbyterian brothers hold to, or Reformed Presbyterians hold to, and the 1689, which is 45 more Reformed than the 1644. I'm just teasing. Uh, it's, this is the Baptist Confession of Faith in 1689, which uses a, a lot of the same language as the Westminster Confession of Faith. And it wasn't because they were too lazy to write their own. It was the effort was to say, we are so in line with you guys on so many of the items. And here are just a few areas that we disagree. It was an attempt to show unity, which was flatly rejected, but it was an attempt to show unity with our Presbyterian brothers. So we're in, you don't have this except in your handout, but you'll notice under bullet point one, a quote from chapter one of the confession, paragraph six, and it says this. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word. 
Last week, we ended off on this concept that everything that we need when it comes to salvation, faith, and life, everything that we need is in the Holy Scripture. And whether it's explicitly in there or implied in there. So that was what we ended on. With that said, we do acknowledge that the Holy Spirit is needed. The Holy Spirit needs to illuminate a person in order for them to understand the Bible in a way that that person would be saved. Because after all, an unbeliever can rightly have an understanding intellectually about salvation, right? You catechize your children. They have, a, they have an intellectual understanding about salvation. An unbeliever can answer the question, what do Christians believe about salvation? They can understand that, that the Bible says that they are sinners and that they need to trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation. They can understand that. But if they would actually be saved by that information, the Holy Spirit has to move. That's what the confession is saying. Now, to see this, we're going to take a look at a couple of passages, starting with John chapter 6, verse 45. John 6, 45. The context of John chapter 6, verse 45, Jesus has just told the crowd an unpopular statement. He said that he's the bread of life, and he tells them that they need to eat his flesh, and they start to grumble. They liked him before because... He could miraculously feed them when they're hungry, but now he's saying things that they don't like, and they start to grumble. They say, isn't that Joseph's kid? How can Joseph's kid say that he has come down from heaven? And then Jesus says in verse 44, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. And then we read in our verse, verse 45, it is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. End quote. So Jesus there quotes Isaiah 54:13 to make his point that no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. The point that he's making is that all who come to Jesus are taught by his Father. All who come to Jesus have learned something from his Father. Now, we need to break that down a little bit. It's helpful for us to examine verse 44 with it. Verse 44. So in verse 44, Jesus says that no one can come to him unless the Father draws him. Now, one might read this verse and they might argue that God draws everyone. And in drawing everyone, he makes it possible for people to come to Jesus. The difficulty with that is at the end of verse 44, Jesus says, and I will raise him up on the last day. Well, who is him? Jesus says, I will raise him up on the last day. Who is him? The same as the other him in the first sentence, the one whom the Father draws. So logically, we can conclude that if God draws a person, Christ will raise that person up on the last day. Therefore, unless you believe that everyone is going to be saved on the last day, then you should conclude that God does not, in fact, draw everyone. He draws those whom he will save. And furthermore, the word draw there in verse 44 is not like wooing. It's not like, hey, come here. The word draw is like dragging something. 
The word is used in, in the scriptures of talking about drawing a sword or drawing a fishing net. Uh, it's used a couple times to talk about how the mob dragged Paul around. They weren't like, come on, Paul. They were dragging him around, right? It's about, in James, it's used about being dragged into court. This is the way that the Father draws people. He's not wooing them. He's not quietly saying, come here. He's pulling people. Now, having this argument in my head earlier this week, trying to think of objections, one could say that the him that is talked about when I will raise him up on the last day is talking about the person who actually comes to Jesus. So in that line of thinking, God draws everyone, and whoever actually comes to Jesus will be raised on the last day. There's a major problem with that idea. The major problem with this idea is that you would have to say that God is not strong enough to draw people effectively. I mean, he was able to do it for you. He was able to draw you in such a way that you were brought all the way to the point of your salvation. Was he unable to do that for your friends or your family members? Could he not have drawn them a little harder? Could he not give everybody a Damascus Road experience without violating their free will? I'm talking about when the Apostle Paul was on the road to Damascus and, and Christ shows up in the middle of the road and says, Paul, Paul, why are you persecuting me? He didn't make Paul in that situation believe, but he definitely did. <laughs> yes, he did and he didn't, right? Couldn't he give everyone that kind of experience without violating their free will? You would have to conclude that God is not persuasive enough to help people come freely. You'd have to conclude that. The reason why my friend doesn't believe is God was not able to draw them. No. What makes more sense and what's more in line with the whole counsel of God is that God draws those whom he will and all of those whom he draws will come to Jesus. That's the God who we serve. Now we get to verse 45 where Jesus quotes the prophet saying, and they will all be taught by God. They will all be taught by God. This is the nature of the new covenant people, those who trust in Jesus Christ. Everyone in the new covenant, as opposed to the old covenant with Israel, everyone in the new covenant is taught by God himself. And Christ's conclusion from that passage is that everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. So what that means is that everyone whom the Father teaches trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation. Everyone whom the Father teaches trusts in Jesus Christ for salvation. Now, the rebuttal to this is that, again, God teaches everyone, they would say. And therefore, anyone who comes to Jesus has been taught by God because he teaches everyone. And they might say that the only difference between me and this person over here is that they refuse to hear, they refuse to learn, and therefore they don't come to Jesus. But based on the preceding verse that teaches that God draws only those whom he will save, it's appropriate to conclude that God also only teaches those whom he will save. He only teaches those whom he will save. But again, let's just say, theoretically, that the other interpretation is correct, that God teaches everyone. Again, you would have to conclude that God is not a convincing enough teacher. 
He is trying so hard to teach everyone, but not everyone will hear him. Look, you can maintain human free will, but you can make it so that God saves more people by being a more capable teacher. But that's not what going, what's going on here. What's happening is that those whom God teaches go to Jesus. Those whom God draws come to Jesus. Those whom God teaches come to Jesus. So what's the point? How does this tie in with our study? Well, the way that God draws people and teaches them is through the internal ministry of the Holy Spirit that we call illumination. That's what makes a believer different from an unbeliever who's looking at the very same text. It's not because the believer is smarter. It's not because they're a better reader or more spiritually receptive or less rebellious. It's simply because God, the Holy Spirit, illuminates the truth for the believer. And if he did not do that, then we wouldn't believe the scriptures. None of us would. As beautiful as they are on their own, every one of us would reject it because of our rebellious hearts. Next, let's look at 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 through 12. 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 through 12. We saw most of this passage last week, and you'll recall that in this passage, Paul is arguing that the reason that anyone believes is because of the Holy Spirit. He's just said that that none of the rulers of the age understood the hidden wisdom of God, because if they had, they wouldn't have crucified Christ, the Lord of glory. And then we read in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 9 through 12, read with me, but as it is written... What no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. So in verse 9, Paul alludes to a passage in Isaiah to refer to things that no one had understood. No eye had seen it, no ear had heard it, no heart had imagined it. And these things are, Paul says, what God has prepared for those who love him, namely is the revelation of Jesus Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, And then we remember from the rest of the verses from last week that God revealed those things to us through the Spirit, who knows everything that God knows because the Spirit is God. And since we've received the Spirit of God, we can now understand the things of God. So again, the reason why we understand what we read in the Scriptures and understand them unto salvation is that the Holy Spirit illuminates the truth to us. We can see the truth because of his light. And and if he didn't do that for us, we wouldn't understand the scriptures, not not in any meaningful saving way. So the point is very similar to one that we made last week, and the difference is very subtle. Last week we had said that without God giving us faith, we wouldn't believe the scriptures, okay? Faith, we wouldn't believe. 
Now we're saying that without God giving us understanding, we wouldn't understand the scriptures. They're closely related, but they're slightly different. What that means is that not only do you need the Holy Spirit in order to believe the Bible, but you also need the Holy Spirit to rightly understand the Bible. So with that in mind, here are two quick applications for you. First, thank God for giving us the Holy Spirit. Thank God for giving us the Holy Spirit. Because were it not for him, everything in the Bible would still be foolishness in your sight. And you would not be a follower of Jesus Christ. You would still be on your hellbound race. So thank God for giving us a right understanding of the scriptures. And second, pray that God would illuminate the truth to others. People do reject the scriptures because of their rebellion, so they are certainly at fault. But they also, in order for them to escape their current state, need the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit needs to open their eyes so that they might see. So for your friends and family who don't believe, pray earnestly that he would do that for them, just as he has done it for you. So, the illumination of the Holy Spirit is required to understand the scriptures unto salvation. Next, let's see, number two. Number two. Common sense and culture do affect how we apply some of the principles of scripture. Common sense and culture do affect how we apply some of the principles of scripture. Read with me at uh, under bullet point two, chapter one, paragraph six. And that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions in societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So God tells us how to worship him. He tells us how to govern the church but there are certain details, certain circumstances that the scriptures leave out. And a lot of those details are going to be dictated by the society in which we live. General revelation and wisdom, or as the uh, confession puts it, the light of nature and Christian prudence, those things guide us on how to apply the word in different circumstances. And we need to remain in accord with the general principles of the Bible. In other words, if there's anything that we want to do, either you individually or us as a church, that is contradictory to the Bible, then we are not to do it. Let's take a look at some evidence for this in 1 Corinthians 11. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 13 and 14. 1 Corinthians 11, 13 through 14. Paul is, is making the argument for why the women in Corinth should pray with head coverings. And he says in our verses, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Now there is an ongoing debate, even among Reformed people, about whether head coverings are biblically required for all women in all places in every era. And we're really not going to get into that particular argument tonight because that's not the scope of our study and I'm not really prepared to give a meaningful defense for any side. So if you have any questions on that in particular, ask Pastor Corey, Vladimir, or Pastor Rollo. So again, what we're going to do instead is I'm just going to tell you what I think is being said here and apply it to the point that we're making. 
Paul is appealing to what the Corinthians should know by common sense. They should know these things by common sense. Would it have been proper for a wife to pray to God to her head uncovered? What he's getting at is, is that it's common knowledge among them that a head covering was a sign of a woman's submission to her husband. That's common knowledge. Would it be appropriate, therefore, for a woman to stand up in church in Corinth and pray publicly without that symbol of submission to her husband? Wouldn't that have been clearly inappropriate? That's the argument that Paul is making. Then in verse 14, he asks, Does not nature teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? Just scanning the guys here in the room. Hmm. (laughs) I'm just kidding. Just joking, brother. You're good. So here's why I actually think that Paul isn't making an argument from creation, but from conscience based on culture. Um, If wearing long hair was a violation of natural order, if wearing long hair was a disgrace, then why would God have forbidden the Nazarites from cutting their hair? Why would Samson's strength and his glory be in his long hair? Instead, what I think, again, he's saying here is that culturally in Corinth, you just look around. Women wear long hair. Men keep their hair short. It was so ingrained in their culture that it should have been common sense to them. Men kept their hair short, and women let their locks flow. But when they were married, they covered up their beautiful hair in submission to their husbands. So therefore, with the principles of godly submission and orderly worship of God, That should have been plain to the Christians in Corinth that married women should have been praying uh, during the worship service with their heads covered. So in sum, the point we're making here, based on that culture, they had a particular way of applying biblical principles, and it was good for them to do so. It was right for them to do so. And this, by the way, is is the argument that we pastors make for, for why we think it's appropriate to dress up a little for church. This is why we... This is kind of the same idea, why we think that it's appropriate to dress up a little bit when we go to the assembly of the saints together. Because in our culture, we all know that you don't just show up to a special event in your pajamas. That's plain to all of us. You don't even have to make an argument for that. We just know. In some other cultures, they might sleep in the same clothes that they wear to a wedding. That, 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 that might be the case for that culture, but we know that that's not the case in our culture. Therefore, in keeping with the principles of orderliness of worship and reverence to God and the gathered assembly, we encourage people to just spruce it up a little bit. We don't enforce that very strongly, but we have asked, and this is the principle that we're invoking, because culture does affect how we apply some of the principles of Scripture. Okay? Let's next look at uh, 1 Corinthians 14. Turn over a page or two. 1 Corinthians 14. verse 26 and 40. 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26. So Paul, in in giving instructions for orderly worship, he writes in 1 Corinthians 14, 26, What then, brothers? When you come together, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Let all things be done for building up. One of the features of of the church at Corinth was that they definitely were not lacking in spiritual gifts. They had plenty of spiritual gifts in Corinth, and they were all rightly bringing them together for the assembly of the saints. 
the issue wasn't their gifts. It's that they were being disorderly with how they were using their gifts. So we have this principle given by Paul. Look at the end of verse 26. Let all things be done for building up. So one of the features of, again, the church at Corinth, they had plenty of spiritual gifts. Another feature of the church at Corinth was that spiritual gifting was a source of pride for people. So one principle that should guide them going forward that he's giving to them is, let all things be done for building up. Your gift should be used to build people up. If you're using your gift in such a way that doesn't build people up, then that's being used improperly. And then he lists several examples in the verses that follow ours. It it seems like that there were several people who were speaking in tongues all at the same time and without any interpretation. You can imagine how chaotic that would be. It seems like too many people were trying to bring prophecies to the church and all at the same time to boot. None of this was edifying to the church. How could you be built up in church when there is so much chaos and disorder in the worship service? So, Paul tells them to do all things in a way in which people are built up. Now, he does give some specifics in the verses following, but with this principle, it's going to vary by circumstance. It's going to vary. And rather than the Bible spelling out every possible circumstance for us, we're expected to just use our common sense. We should know, based on our context, what is going to be edifying and what's not going to be edifying. And that does vary, to some degree, from culture to culture. In some church cultures, for example, it is completely appropriate to bring your own tambourine to the worship service. It's compl- in some cultures of the church, it is completely appropriate to do that. And in those situations, it is so common that it's actually not distracting to them and actually could be helpful in making a joyful noise to the Lord. But one time, we had someone bring her own tambourine into our service, and it ended up actually being a distraction. It, it wasn't building up. So common sense, applying the principle of let all things be done to build up, would say, oh, I'm the only one here with a tambourine. Maybe I won't play it today, right? Because it's not going to build people up. It's going to distract people from singing the word of God. So again, common sense and culture do affect how we apply some principles of scripture. Go down to verse 40. Verse 40. After giving some specifics of orderly worship, he ties a bow on it in verse 40. But all things should be done decently and in order. Decently and in order. Again, this is um, the overriding principle for why the specifics that Paul gave make sense. We got to use common sense. We have to have an understanding of the culture around us, be it our local local culture or our church's culture. Um, We need to understand that in order to know what decent means. We We need to understand it in order to know what in order means. Because what it might mean for us here in Las Vegas, Nevada, is probably going to be different from what it means from the tribe in Mentawai in Indonesia. And our missionaries to Indonesia are going to have to use common sense to know what is decent and what is orderly based on that culture. Surely, there are going to be universal principles, like if everybody's talking at the same time, that's not helpful, that's not orderly. But there are circumstances that are going to vary. 
So, common sense and culture do affect how we apply some of the principles of Scripture. That said, Scripture is always the one that overrides the others. Scripture is always the one that overrides. Remember the last phrase of that quote we read from the Second London Baptist. According to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Ergo, we can't say in our we can't say, well, in our culture, women are the leaders. And therefore, common sense would tell us that some of our pastors should be women. Or we can't say, in our culture, it is polite and honorable to ask somebody for their preferred gender pronouns. In these cases, culture needs to be ignored in order to obey the word of God. With that said, where scripture is not violated, then common sense and culture should be considered when we're thinking about how to actually properly apply and obey the scriptures. Here's two quick tips for this in real life. Number one, know your scriptures well. Know them well. Before you can answer how to apply the Bible in various situations and contexts, you got to know what the Bible says. And furthermore, knowing what the Bible says is going to help you to not be swayed by the culture against Christ. So know your scriptures well. And secondly, use your head. Use your head. Your, your now Holy Spirit renewed head. Okay? The Bible doesn't say whether I can come to church wearing rollerblades. Common sense should tell you that in our culture, that wouldn't be considered decent or orderly to roll into church in my rollerblades. So leave your rollerblades in the car. The Bible doesn't say that I must tip generously at a restaurant. Well, in our culture, tipping well is considered honorable and kind, and not tipping is considered disrespectful and tacky. Amen, Des? Yeah, she works at a restaurant. Amen. Romans 12, 17 says, Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And using that principle, tip. Tip. Especially don't pray publicly or leave a gospel tract and not tip because you're making us all look bad. Okay? So common sense and culture do affect how we apply some of the principles of Scripture. Moving on in our study of the Holy Scriptures. Let's observe number three. Not everything in the Bible is equally clear. Not everything in the Bible is equally clear. Notice paragraph 1, chap I'm sorry, chapter 1, paragraph 7. All things in Scripture are not alike plain in themselves, nor alike clear unto all. In other words, not every verse in the Bible is equally as easy to understand as the others. You know this from reading your Bible. Not every verse is equally clear to everybody, as some verses are. And to see this, let's take a look at just one passage, 2 Peter 3, 16. 2 Peter 3, 16. In Peter's closing words of this letter, he alludes to Paul's writings, the Apostle Paul's writings, which were written, verse 15 tells us, according to the wisdom given him. And then we read in verse 16, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters, there are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction as they do the other scriptures. 
If you've ever been reading one of Paul's letters and you found yourself reading a verse and rereading it and rereading it because you're just not grasping what he's saying, be comforted by the fact that even Peter seems to think that some of what Paul writes are hard to understand. All right? Paul mentions, for example, the baptism for the dead in 1 Corinthians 15. He says that Jesus emptied himself in Philippians 2. He says that it is no longer Paul who sins, but sin in him in Romans 7. He says in Romans 12 that our kindness heaps fiery coals on our enemies' heads. We're not going to explain all of those things right now, but the point is there are some things in Paul's writings that are hard to understand. And then what happens is that, 2 Peter 3.16, the ignorant and the unstable twist those difficult passages to their own destruction. Mormons actually perform baptisms for the dead. They don't actually, I was relieved to hear, dunk dead people underwater, but they take somebody and the, who stands in the place of a dead person and they baptize that person on behalf of the dead. Some people teach that the son, when he became incarnate, gave up all of his divine attributes just to live as a common man. That's a heretical doctrine called kenosis. And some have taught throughout church history even that being that because it's really the soul that matters, not the body, that it really doesn't matter what we do with our body. We can just do whatever we want with our body. All of these things would be twistings of the difficult things that Paul wrote. But notice that it's not just Paul's letters that people do this to. Look at verse 16. Peter writes at the end of verse 16, as they do the other scriptures, which again, just as a review, it points to the fact that what Paul writing was writing was actually considered scripture by the Apostle Peter. Therefore, the New Testament is not just good writings, they're actually scriptures as well. Ignorant and unstable people twist the scriptures to their own destructions. And what's implied here in particular is that those scriptures are also hard to understand. Some passages in the scripture are harder to understand than the others. Just read the book of Daniel. You're reading the book of Daniel, chapters 1 through 6. You're just enjoying a very pretty straightforward and amazing narrative. And then, boom, chapters 7 through 12 are an apocalypse. <laughs> times, times, and half a time, right? You see over and over again in Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6 are much easier to understand than chapters 7 through 12. Amen. Chapters 1 through 6 are more clear than chapters 7 through 12. So, yes. Not everything in the Bible is equally clear. What do we do with that? Four quick points of application. Hope you're finding these helpful. Number one, be humble in your study. Be humble in your study. It can be easy to think that you have the absolute right interpretation of a passage, even though historically good brothers and sisters throughout church history disagree with you. For example, I am wholly convinced of credo-baptism, meaning that baptism is for those who make a profession of faith. But I have to admit that my theological heroes don't agree with me. Well, they do now if they're in heaven. <laughs> Stand on the truth, hold your ground, but be humble and recognize that you might actually be wrong when it comes to passages that are less clear. So be humble in your study. And two, be patient with others. Be patient with others. The struggle that, what's that? Uh, be patient with others. 
The struggle that you're going through with these unclear texts is the same ones that other people are going through. Like, you might be a Calvinist now because you've, you've wrestled through the verses that seem to support Arminianism, but others have not completed that journey. So don't be so quick to condemn them who have a hard time with these passages that are not as clear. So be patient with others. Thirdly, use resources wisely. Use resources wisely. The church has been interpreting the scriptures for centuries. We don't just come up with new stuff today. We, just like we're going through the confession of faith, we are standing on the shoulders of giants. And while some theologians have come to incorrect conclusions in the past, it's worthwhile to read their comments at least. Read what they've said, whether it's historically or modern. I highly recommend this resource to you, relight.app, R-E-L-I-G-H-T dot A-P-P, relight.app. It's awesome. It, it, it has solid resources that will help you to understand those more difficult passages. But more importantly, I would say lean heavily on the shepherds and teachers that God has gifted you with. Ask your pastors questions. We welcome them. Well, the other three do. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Just joking. I, I welcome questions too. Ask your pastors questions. Learn from your pastors. We don't want to hear that you're leaving the church because of some doctrine we never even knew you were wrestling through. Help us to think through those things with you. We have some level of experience with some of these things. And fourthly, pray for understanding. Pray for understanding. Because ultimately, again, it's going to be the Holy Spirit who helps you to rightly understand a passage. So pray for help. Pray for illumination. And pray for humility. So, not everything in the Bible is equally clear. However, number four, number four, the Bible is clear enough for salvation. The Bible is clear enough for salvation. Notice paragraph, or chapter one, paragraph seven. Yet those things which are necessary to be known, believed, and observed for salvation are so clearly propounded and opened in some place of scripture or other that not only the learned, but the unlearned, in a due use of ordinary means, may attain to a sufficient understanding of them. Whatever you need to know, whatever you need to believe in order to be saved is so clearly laid out in the scriptures that even uneducated people can understand enough to be saved. Several studies ago, I mentioned there, there was his brother and sister, a father, brother and sister in the Lord, who are in real life, father and daughter. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. They're our brother and sister, but they were saved simply by the dad opening the Bible and reading it to her when she was sick. And that's how they both became saved. I don't know what they were reading, but if it was the book of John, they may have started out pretty confused, right? The book of John starts out, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. If you're just now reading the Bible for the first time, you're going to have a lot of questions. Now, for we who have read it for a we understand it's talking about Jesus, but for those who are reading it for the first time, they may be confused. But if they continue to read just through chapter 3 even, they would already know at that point and understand enough to be saved. That's how clear the Bible is. 
even if some passages that are specific in the Bible are harder to understand, that's how clear the whole Bible is. The doctrine of the clarity of the Bible is called the perspicuity of Scripture. The perspicuity of Scripture. Let's take a look at a couple of passages that teach the perspicuity of Scripture, starting with Psalm 19, verse 7. Psalm 19, verse 7. The psalmist writes in Psalm 19, 7, The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. Those phrases, law of the Lord and testimony of the Lord, those are just nicknames for the scriptures. Those are different ways to call, refer to the scriptures. The psalmist says that the scriptures are perfect, reviving the soul. The scriptures are also sure, meaning that they're reliable, they're trustworthy. And being reliable and trustworthy, they make wise the simple. What you'd have to logically conclude from that last bit of making wise the simple is that if the simple can be made wise by the scriptures, then the simple would be able to understand the scriptures. So while the scriptures are indeed complex, they are indeed deep. They are also understandable to the simple. Thank God for that. Amen? Thank God for that. Similarly, let's look at Psalm 119, verse 130. Psalm 119, verse 130. In this beautiful and elaborate psalm, which is basically the whole time praising God for the scriptures, the psalmist writes in Psalm 119, 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It imparts understanding to the simple. That's a wonderful illustration, isn't it? Opening up God's word, unrolling God's word, shines forth light into darkness. And it gives understanding to the simple. Again, same idea. Same idea. The Bible is not just for the learned. It's not just for the scholars. It's even to the simple. It imparts understanding. And that's God's wise and beautiful design for his word. You can kind of see how this is openly speaking out against how Roman Catholics thought of the Bible. They did not. They refused to translate the Bible into the common tongue because it was commonly thought that regular people like you and me couldn't understand the Bible. But that's not how God's word is. God's word is, in fact, clear enough for salvation and not just for justification. It's not clear enough only to show you how you can be forgiven of your sins, place your trust in Jesus Christ and him alone. It's not only clear enough for that. It's also clear enough for your sanctification and also knowledge of your future glorification. The Bible is clear enough on how to be forgiven of your sins, faith alone in Christ alone, it's clear enough on how to live for Christ. And it's clear enough to give us a hope for the future. One week I heard Pastor Vladimir uh, teaching on this subject in Grupo Hispano a while back. And as he was teaching, this question came to mind. What about Revelation? Surely what Pastor Vladimir is saying doesn't apply to the book of Revelation. And so I asked him about it afterwards. Uh, is Revelation clear enough for anyone to understand? And Brother Robinson, who was standing there in our, in our trio, he gave a great answer to this. Basically, it was, 
Now, you're not going to understand all the different nuances and the images and the metaphors of the book, but even without study, you can read the book of Revelation and be rightly encouraged with the main message, Jesus wins. Yet even, yeah, Revelation is clear enough on its own. Even, even though many of its parts are not as clear as other parts of the scriptures, you can walk away with the main point of the book, Jesus wins, so have hope. So, what do we do with this knowledge that the Bible is clear enough for salvation? Again, three quick applications. Knowing that the, that the Bible is clear enough for salvation, use it in evangelism and discipleship. Use it. Knowing that the Bible is clear enough for justification, to bring someone from guilty to not guilty before the Lord, and it's clear enough for sanctification, bringing somebody from their old self to being more like Christ, use the Bible for sharing the gospel and use it to teach them all that Christ has commanded. You don't need to overcomplicate it. The Bible is clear. Use it in evangelism and discipleship. Number two, try to understand it on its own first. Try to understand the Bible on its own first. What I'm saying is we can be tempted to go to commentaries first before we even read the Word of God. The Bible is God's Word, and it's clear. Before you look at commentaries, which are helpful, try to understand what a passage itself is saying on your own with the help of the Holy Spirit. And then thirdly, check your work. Check your work in that. After you've done that, then use the trusted resources like Realite.app to see if your thinking is actually in line with older brothers in the faith. If you have interpreted a passage of scripture in a way that no one ever has in church history, you've probably run into a new heresy. You probably didn't understand it correctly. Okay? So try to understand it on its own, but then check your work. Let's summarize what we've covered tonight, and then we'll open up for some questions. Number one, the illumination of the Holy Spirit is required to understand the scriptures unto salvation. Number two, common sense and culture do affect how we apply some of the principles of Scripture. Number three, not everything in the Bible is equally clear. And number four, the Bible is clear enough for salvation. How wonderful it is that God didn't just leave us to believe and understand the Bible on our own. We have the propensity to exchange the truth about God for a lie. That's what we were doing before we were saved, and because the flesh remains in believers, we're still struggling with that. But by God's grace, he dwells in us. The Holy Spirit dwells in us and works in us to rightly understand the Bible. How wonderful it is also that, that God has given us common sense to apply the scriptures in a variety of situations. After all, the world that we live in is very different from first century Palestine. And yet every word of God proves true. And the same scriptures that our brothers and sisters were using thousands of years ago are still relevant and applicable. How wonderful it is also that the Bible is both intricate and it's also basic. It's complex and it's simple. An unbeliever can read it and be saved. A new believer can read it and be transformed. And even a seasoned believer, even after decades of reading it, can every time proclaim 
Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. There's a brother here at church who uh, sometimes will send me short videos on an app called Marco Polo. And a lot of times, kind of awkwardly, he ends the videos by saying, keep reading the scriptures. And so I leave you with that exhortation tonight. Keep reading the scriptures. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. And thank you for your wisdom in making it so that even people like us can actually understand it. We're so thankful that you have been wise and kind and gracious to do that. And we pray that, therefore, that we would read it, that we would be voracious readers of your word, even more than reading theological books which are helpful to us and edifying to us, that even more than that, we would hunger for your word as a baby hungers for spiritual, for, for milk. Give us that appetite, O oh Lord, and help us to read it with confidence, knowing that you are speaking. All of this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we got some time for some questions. Hit me.